Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part five of True Age by Dr. Morgan Levine. This is the last episode of the book. And in this episode, I'll be discussing exercise and aging, rest and relaxation, and then finding your quote unquote just right. So to begin, we'll be discussing exercise. And to make things easier, we'll be going organ by organ. Physical activity exerts profound and lasting health benefits across various systems and organs in our bodies from our bones to our hearts and even our brains. No matter your age, disease state, or athletic proclivity, nearly everyone can benefit from staying active. When it comes down to it, the effects of exercise on health and aging are remarkable. Numerous studies have pointed to the benefits of exercise for both disease management and also disease prevention. Let's begin with the cardiovascular system. Our cardiovascular system consists of our heart, cardio, the blood vessels, vascular, and of course, the blood running through it. We know for a fact that exercise improves our cardiac output. In, in the case of regular exercise in which the system regularly encounters periods of high oxygen demands, your body will adapt and become more efficient. The lungs will increase their capacity to take in more oxygen with every breath, and the heart will boost its ability to pump more blood through th throughout the entire body. This, of course, is the cardiac output. We know for a fact, too, that exercise can lower our blood pressure in the long run, and it can also improve our endothelial function. Our endothelial cells line our blood vessels and have many beneficial effects, like releasing certain factors like nitric oxide. Next is our metabolic system. Exercise has the capacity to reshape our metabolism. The most obvious way is that it helps burn excess energy, reducing blood sugar levels and depleting energy stores in our adipose tissue. This explains why exercise is a powerful antidote for obesity and diabetes. Yet exercise also appears to improve your body's metabolic machinery. This of course is our mitochondria. It has been reported that both the number and the size and the quality of our mitochondria improve after exercise. Exercise stimulates your body to be better at storing energy, glycogen, and skeletal muscle and improving its capacity to utilize fat overall. These metabolic changes in muscle will also increase what is called the lactate threshold. When someone exercises in a high intensity, metabolism really gets revved up to really meet the energy needs. Unfortunately, this produces a byproduct called lactic acid. We all have that feeling when we're sprinting really hard and we feel those burning pain in the leg and our legs and the cramping and all that stuff. That comes from the buildup of lactic acid. Interestingly, there's new data from the exercise physiology lab of Dr. George Brooks, a professor at UC Berkeley, who suggests that not only does exercise boost the, abilities, the liver's ability to dispose of lactic acid, it may also help teach our muscle cells how to convert it for use as energy source. So when muscle cells are using anaerobic metabolism, meaning without oxygen, to generate energy, they produce lactic acid. During very intense exercise, however, another metabolic pathway is ignited called the oxidative aerobic metabolism. This pathway enables mitochondria to uptake, oxidize, and burn the accumulated lactic acid to produce even more energy. It may also explain why exercise boosts mitochondrial number and functioning, and in doing so may prevent much of the biological aging that stems from mitochondrial loss and dysfunction. So we are using the lactate 
that gets produced to our advantage to make even more energy. This is the benefit of, of exercise on our mitochondria and our metabolism as well. How about exercising the immune system? We know exercise is very important for our immune system. Um, let's see. So we know here that numerous studies have demonstrated that both aerobic exercise and strength training can reduce sign signatures of inflammation in the blood, muscle, and fat cells. The thymus also appears to respond to exercise. The thymus is where your T cells go to really mature, and physical activity can boost thymus thymic output of our T cells. Now, this observation, among others, may explain why physical activity really protects against cancer and also infection. Physical activity also seems to boost vaccine response in the elderly as well. How about exercise in your brain? Yet perhaps one of the most striking demonstrations of how exercise can impact your brain was a 2020 paper published in Science by Dr. Saul Vietti, Vietti's group at UCSF. Rather than exercising mice that then directly assessing the impact on their brains, what this group did was actually administered the blood from exercised mice to non-exercised older mice and then looked to see what happened. They found that the process Im improved hippocampal functioning. So the hippocampus is the area in our brain that is critical for learning and memory. And when these older mice were given, you know, the they were kind of given blood from the younger mice, it improved this whole functioning in their brain. Now, the premise is based on the idea that exercise promotes the release of certain factors in our blood that may have a beneficial effect throughout the body, including our brain. Through this research, the scientists were able to also identify specific factors that may be responsible for this amazing finding. One of these factors, the name's not really important, but it's called GPLD1. This is expressed by liver. This is expressed in the liver and gets increased in response to exercise. They showed that administration of GPLD1 could actually improve cognitive performance in old mice. They also found that higher levels of GPLD1 in the blood of healthy, um, they, they tend to be higher in healthy, active, older humans as well. Now, just remember, it is never too late to start exercising. For many frail older adults, Exercise is all too often viewed as something very dangerous. Frail individuals are often worried that exercise may actually lead to falls or injury. But when you look at the data, it's actually the exact opposite. So the exact opposite is true. Exercise does not cause frailty. It does not increase the risk of falls or injury. It lowers the risk of falls or injury. One of the major contributors of frailty within aging is called sarcopenia. This refers to the loss of skeletal muscle and strength with age. And it's thought to be a direct contributor to many of the physical impairments people suffer really late in their lives. Sarcopenia occurs for many reasons. And it's really this quote-unquote multifactorial geriatric condition. Some of the problems that may cause sarcopenia are things like alteration in hormone levels, so things like declines in testosterone, declines in estrogen functioning, declining in growth hormone. There's decline in neurological functioning as well. There's more inflammation going on. And there's also escalating prevalence of insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. And there's also growing propensity for fat infiltration 
into our muscles. Basically, all these reasons contribute to sarcopenia. Sarcopenia is also a major risk factor in older adults and substantially increases the risk of falls and fractures. For the past few decades, clinical trials in frail individuals, mostly with sarcopenia, consistently illustrate the benefit of both aerobic and strength resistance training, so both running on the treadmill and also lifting weights. Various small intervention studies have shown that monitored endurance training can improve peak VO2 max and also increase our muscle mass. So higher VO2 max, higher muscle mass, it can also increase our walking speed and lower the risk of osteoporosis. In a randomized control trial, scientists showed that among frail nursing home residents, 10 weeks of resistance training increased muscle strength by 113%. Walking speed, which is an indicator of physical and cognitive function, was increased by 11.8%. This again was just after 10 weeks of resistance training. I cannot overstate the importance of maintaining your muscle mass as you get older from a from a fall and kind of a risk prevention to your metabolic health as well. Now, the ideal exercise prescription. While all this data confirms the benefit of exercise, the numbers can be confusing when we try to evaluate what types and how much exercise we should be doing to get maximum benefit. Even if routines that combine the two may provide the most benefit overall, your goals when it comes to offsetting various components of biological aging may also dictate what you want to focus on. So again, there is not a perfect prescription that is outlined. It's really individual based. This is the problem with the whole diet and exercise space. Everything is very nuanced and you really have to find what is working for you. So I'm going to go ahead and and jump a little forward to the next section, which is rest and relaxation. Throughout these past four episodes, I've really focused a lot on diet and exercise, those two kind of pillars of health, but I really haven't talked about the third pillar of health, which, which kind of encompasses like the whole sleep, spirituality, rest and relaxation. And I'm really gonna focus on the CSF and sleep, and also sleep and how it affects our epigenetic change. Now, if you want greater detail about sleep, I highly recommend listening to my Why We Sleep podcast by Dr. Matthew Walker. In there has the most detailed explanations of the importance of sleep. But Dr. Morgan Levine also mentions it in this book, so I wanted to discuss it as well, but not in that great detail. So CSF and the brain. During sleep, but not really during wakefulness, very large waves of CSF can be observed washing over our brains. CSS, CSF is the cerebral spinal fluid. It's the fluid that is circulating around and inside our brains. And we know that during sleep, we get huge amounts of these shortwave oscillations called delta waves that manifest during the deep part of our sleep. And researchers from the Boston University and Harvard were able to observe blood flow, CSF flow, and electrical activity simultaneously. What they discovered was that the oscillations of delta waves were in sync with the swell of CSF. The slow rolling electrical brain activity was cyclically changing the volume of blood flow through vessels. When constricted, this would make way for CSF to fill ventricles and the subarachnoid space that surrounds the brain matter. Unlike blood, 
CSF can also flow directly into the brain tissue, bathing our brain cells before being absorbed back into the blood vessels through which it exits the nervous system. Since this remarkable function of CSF was first discovered, scientists have wondered whether this bathing of our brains have implications for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. As I've kind of mentioned in Dr. Matthew Walker's podcast, Alzheimer's brains are often consistent of two main pathological hallmarks. This, of course, is the accumulation of the beta amyloid plaques and also the neurofibrillary tangles. One hypothesis is that CSF is actively working to clear these potential toxic factors away and this ability is further enhanced by the delta wave oscillations that occur during deep sleep. This, of course, is the whole lymphatic system. It's the idea that CSF is washing away all these toxins, these tangles, these plaques, and really improving our cognitive outcome. And we're seeing that there's a huge correlation between sleep and Alzheimer's. While sleep disturbances are a common complaint in individuals with Alzheimer's disease, data are mounting that the link between neurodegeneration and problematic sleep may be more than a symptom. Sleep problems may actually drive disease progression. Studies are showing that disrupting sleep or stimulating excitatory neurons that control arousal promote the accumulation of various Alzheimer's markers in mice. Similarly, sleep deprivation seems to do the same to humans. This can create a compounding effect if ailments of aging, including cognitive ones, cause sleep disturbances, which in turn further drive degenerative declines. The point is, Get your seven to eight hours of sleep. There's always debate about how much sleep there should be. Of course, like exercise, the link between sleep duration and outcomes of health is often U-shaped. You don't want to go too much. You also don't want to go too little. Now I'm going to move forward a little bit and discuss the second part of this whole rest and relaxation, which I mentioned was the circadian rhythm and our epigenome. In contrast to a mechanical clock that ticks out time using cogs, gears, and springs, our biological clock is regulated by the oscillating changes and expression of specific genes. At the core of this timepiece are two genes, one aptly named clock, which stands for circadian locomotor output cycles caput, and the other BMAL1. Together, the expression of these two genes elicit elicit the perpetual cycling changes observed in circadian rhythm via their effect on the epigenome. By modifying the epigenetic landscape, these factors alter the accessibility of our various gene components, turning them on or off and thus contributing or contributing to the oscillations observed in circadian rhythm. Another gene that has been shown to be critical in the process is the CERT1 gene, Based on environmental cues, modulation of CERT1 expression can cause epigenetic change that in turn alter tissue processes including stress response, energy metabolism, remodeling of fat tissue, and also inflammation. Now, if you want to get more information about sirtuins and CERT, I recommend reading or listening to my podcast called Lifespan by Dr. David Sinclair. He's the one who really, him along with uh, a few other scientists, you know, Garanti, they're the ones who really did the majority of this research in yeast and, and discovered these sirtuins and the sirtuin pathway. 
Now, Sirtuin and Sirt1 also offers an exciting link between aging, metabolism, and sleep. Using genetic or pharmaceutical manipulation, scientists have shown that, in addition to the process mentioned, mentioned inhibiting Sirt1 can actually cause circadian dysfunction. Unfortunately, declines in Sirt1 are very common with aging. It's just something that happens. This can potentially be accounting for some of the circadian deficits that are observed as we grow older. The, the decline in Sirt1 function also occurs because of a loss of bioavailable NAD. We know NAD is the cofactor needed for sirtuins to function. And as we get older, our NAD levels plummet. And again, it's not only having an effect on our epigenome, but it's also having an effect on our sleep as well. Now, if you want more information about certs, again, I highly recommend talking about our reading and listening to the Lifespan podcast I did uh, by David Sinclair. For now, I'm going to jump way ahead to the next section called Finding Your Just Right, which is the last section in this book. So really becoming your own scientist. Armed with the insights biological age measures can provide, what is a person to do? How do you determine whether calorie restriction, a plant-based diet, intermittent fasting, cyclical keto, or some combination is right for you? How do you really know? One option is to simply just start testing. While not technically a well-controlled study, tracking your own biological age can help you biohack your own aging process. And even more simply, just start logging stuff. Get better insight into how certain activities throughout the day affect your mood and also affect your athletic performance. For example, let's say you have a really good workout one day you might want to ask yourself, what was different about that day? Did I sleep an extra half an hour? Did I drink an extra maybe liter of water in the morning? What exactly changed that day to make my workout so good? Was it the extra calories that I got? So really be mindful of, you know, the foods you eat, the the fluids you intake, the sleep, and try to figure out what exactly works works for you. You really want to act as your own sort of experiment. And the point is, you know, we can use this biological aging test to find out whether things are actually working or not. Now, the current aging interventions on the horizon run the gamut from repurposing existing drugs to approaches ones relegated to kind of like the realms of science fiction. While discussing all of them would require its own separate like podcast, Morgan Levine would really like to touch on four big kind of promises and hopes in the future. So the first is obviously these calorie restriction mimetics, these whole calorie restrictions in a pill. These therapeutics are, you know, the goal is to give someone benefits of bestowed calorie restriction through a pill rather than a lifestyle transformation, which of course is like a very ethical debate. Should we be giving people calorie restriction mimetics? In 2005, Dr. Matt Caberline, who uh, as a profound researcher in this aging field, published a paper in Science demonstrating the impact of dietary restriction in yeast on the downregulation of a pathway called TOR. I'm, of course, mentioning this is the target of rapamycin or mammalian target of rapamycin. Basically, mTOR detects levels of like glucose, insulin, amino acids, leptin, exogen, oxygen within cells, and then they kind of turn on and off signals depending on whether these are pregnant, uh, present. And because mTOR is thought to be responsible for many of the 
metabolic and immune shifts that occur in response to restricted food intake, it was hypothesized that manipulating this pathway could trick the body into thinking that it was undergoing calorie restriction even though it wasn't. And perhaps one of the most exciting thing was that the a drug that could turn down mTOR activity had already been discovered 40 years prior. This, of course, is the rapamycin drug. So rapamycin inhibits mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin. Rapamycin was discovered in 1964 in Rapa Nui, often referred to as Easter Island. This, of course, is where the 900 monolithic uh, statues are. Those, those, they're called moai. Those very odd-looking, you know, archaeologic structures that we have no idea how they got there. Um, but this is where rapamycin was discovered in the soil uh, in Rapa Nui. And it was also discovered that rapamycin could slow cellular growth, uh, positioning it as a promising contender in the fight against things like cancer. And finally, in 2009, scientists observed that administering rapamycin increased survival in male and female mice by 9 and 14% respectively. And again, this this whole field is exploding now. You know, Dr. Caberlain is doing his own experiment on dogs at the University of Washington. And as part of a large group, the researchers sought to test whether rapamycin could improve cardiac health in healthy old dogs and determine, you know, the optimal dosing of rapamycin. And based on promising results in the small pilot study, the team has hoped of scaling up and also examining other outcomes regarding things like cancer, kidney health, cognitive functioning, and other various aging measures. Again, if you want more information and the complete backstory of rapamycin, I highly recommend listening to my Lifespan book by Dr. David Sinclair. So that was the first kind of broad thing she wanted to talk about. The next broad thing and sort of future innovation is innovation is the whole like senolytics. So senolytics are the class of drugs that target senescent cells by forcing them to really commit suicide or apoptosis. We know the accumulation of senescent cells is a hallmark of aging, and it can wreak a lot of havoc by secreting inflammatory cytokines. We call them SASPs, or senescence-associated secretory phenotypes. In 2011, there was a team of researchers at the Mayo Clinic who designed a mouse model that could selectively target harboring, uh, they targeted cells that had a marker called P161NK48A. This was a marker on senescent cells. And when drug-inducing death in these cells was administered, they found that mice went on to exhibit signs of postponement or even regression for a variety of age-related phenotypes. In other words, that was a lot of you know sentences and a lot of uh, you know numbers and letters, but we targeted this these senescent cells, and when we cleared them, we saw that it actually exhibited, you know, age regression and any, all these age-related, you know, diseases as well. So that's the whole senolytic field. Again, there's kind of good news that we can kind of target senescent cells and this whole senolytic process with, you know, quercetin. This is a plant-derived supplement, which is FDA-approved, and 
you know, there, there's a lot of promise in this field as well. The next, the third, you know, next kind of innovation is this whole young blood. It's the idea that, you know, we can give young mice, we can give old mice, young mice blood, and it improves markers. So there was this team out of Stanford in the early 2000s that did exactly that. The team observed that when old animals were connected to young ones, so they shared the same circulatory system, these age-related changes were actually attenuated. And subsequent studies by the same group and others have fir- uh, further affirmed that exposure to young blood can actually rejuvenate many of the aging-related changes that were you know, once considered irreversible. So again, this, this all sounds very like science fiction, but it's showing in mice that if you give old mice the young, young mice's blood, it's improving their, all their markers. There was also another, you know, researcher out of UCSF. His lab showed that when blood of exercise mice was administered to non-exercise mice, they saw appreciable effects in terms of cognition and also presumed slower brain aging. So again, this is all, you know, very futuristic, but, you know, hopefully sometime in our lifetime, we can really see the, all these kinds of things come to the general public and the very last thing, the fourth final innovation is just the whole reprogram, reprogramming of our operation system. So, you know, we, we've all, we're all familiar with the Yamanaka factors. Dr. Shinya Yamanaka was a professor of stem cell biology over in Kyoto University, Japan. And he discovered the factors that can determine a cell's identity. So there are these four, if you haven't listened to my previous podcast, there are these four Yamanaka factors. They are called OCT, SOX, KLF, and MIC. These four Yamanaka factors were shown to, you know, reverse the the identity of cell. So they took a differentiated cell and were able to turn it back into an induced pluripotent stem cell through the manipulation of these Yamanaka factors. And more and more work has been done by Dr. David Sinclair And in recent years, they found that this switch from old to young cells not only occurs for cells in a dish, but it can also be initiated for cells in a body. So in 2020, Dr. Liu, who was a graduate student in David Sinclair's lab at Harvard, used Yamanaka factors to reprogram the cells in the optic nerve of mice. And in doing so, the team was able to restore damage-induced or glaucoma-related vision loss And in collaboration with Dr. Morgan Levine's lab, they showed that they were also able to reverse the epigenetic age of these cells. So this is truly remarkable. Other labs have provided early evidence of this amazing potential of reprogramming of biological aging. So there was another researcher out of the Salk Institute in La Jolla. And in the study, his team tested whether resetting the epigenome was enough to offset mutations that you know, caused accelerated aging in these progeria mice. They did not do anything to alter the mutations themselves, but showed that restoring a more youthful epigenome could actually extend the lifespan of a mice by 18 to 24 weeks, which is equivalent to about 80 years for a human. Now, when looking at quote-unquote normal mice, they also found that reprogramming could counter a number of age-related manifestations, including boosting resistance to metabolic disease and muscle loss. 
Again, this is all very futuristic, but hopefully sometime in our lifetime, we can see this happen, you know, for all of us. Now, this is the last point I'm going to make. Why wait? Humans are constantly striving to push boundaries of what is, you know, possible in science and technology to improve ourselves beyond what is thought to be possible. When it comes to optimizing our health and aging, betterment doesn't have to come via a pill bottle or through some needle tip at the end of a syringe. While we wait for these groundbreaking discoveries, there are things each of us can do for ourselves. By understanding and tracking our own aging process, we can discover ways to delay our own aging, discover habits that work for us, determine whether to seek medical advice before we are even sick, and even be accountable for our own health and wellness as we enjoy our chronological time on earth. So this is a beautiful way to end this book and a beautiful way to end this podcast. It's really up to you to start having these lifestyle modifications to really slow down your biological aging. And while we wait for all these discoveries to happen, you know, there are things you can start doing right now to, you know, slow down that biological aging. Now, this was a great book. I highly recommend it. Give Morgan Levine a follow on Instagram. She posts a lot of good content. And just a quick update. I'll be at the Andrew Huberman live event next Sunday, October 16th in LA. Let me know if you're going. If you're going, send me a DM. We can meet up. But again, I will be at the Andrew Huberman live event next Sunday, October 16th in LA. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you learned something. And I hope you tune in next time for the next book that I'm going to cover.